Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Lawrence Taylor are insane. He once sacked a quarterback so hard that he snapped the guy's leg and ended his career. He spent $75,000 a month on his two off-field addictions, sex and cocaine. He was busted at gunpoint by an undercover grandmother during a sting operation in Myrtle Beach. He operated with reckless abandon and disregard for his body, which allowed him to reach unbelievable highs both on and off the field. And Lawrence Taylor was also part of some of the greatest moments in sports history. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Not Now, Cato, MK2. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from ABC to a broadcast of the New York Jets' 24-14 victory over my New England Patriots on Monday Night Football. And why would I play you that specific slice of Vinny Testaverde gangrene cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest sporting events in America on October 19, 1998. And that was the day that Lawrence Taylor came out on the short end of an undercover sting operation sending him back to rehab and changing the course of his life forever. In this episode, broken legs, sex, and cocaine, undercover grandmas, and Lawrence Taylor. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 6, Sportsland. November 18, 1985, Washington, D.C. Washington needed a win, bad. Their fans were getting rowdy, and they weren't about to watch the season go up in flames, not yet anyway, not with their rivals, the New York Giants in town. Washington had sputtered to a 5-5 start. It was a bad look for a team that had won its division the last three years running. And now they were facing the real possibility of missing the playoffs altogether. Joe Theismann was a major reason for the downfall. Star quarterback, former MVP, currently in the midst of a painfully average season, one of the worst of his career. But tonight, Theismann was on. Tonight, he was playing like a champion, and the rest of the team was picking up on his vibe. They were going to make a statement, here, live, on Monday Night Football. They weren't going anywhere, and they weren't down, yet. Theismann studied the Giants' defensive formation. The play call was a flea flicker. Theismann could see it unfolding in his mind. Get the snap, deep breath, hand the ball to the running back. Running back pitches it back to Theismann, and that pulls the Giants' defenders in. Another deep breath. Receivers break loose downfield. Theismann is steady. He cocks his arm back and takes a long shot. It was a big gamble. If the Giants sniffed it out, Theismann would be a sitting duck but gambles were required to beat a defense like the Giants. 
mostly due to their apex predator who stalked the field hunting for quarterbacks. Lawrence Taylor wasn't just another linebacker. He was the best defensive player in the NFL. He was so good that he wasn't even Lawrence Taylor anymore. He was LT, and LT was a freak, a game breaker. He glided effortlessly from sideline to sideline with the speed of a wide receiver. He ran full steam with every ounce of brutality he could muster directly into the bodies of opposing players. His teammates joked that he should have a red cape and a phone booth in his locker. But fuck that leaping tall building shit. LT made Superman look like a punk ass bitch. And he was now a permanent fixture in the heads of every quarterback, offensive lineman, and coordinator in the league. Like the Eagles QB, Ron Jaworski, who once called a timeout because he couldn't find LT on the field. LT wasn't even on the field. He was on the sidelines getting his cleats taped. Didn't matter. LT was in the building, and you looked around until you found him. Joe Theismann found LT easily. That didn't mean Joe Theismann wasn't on edge, because he absolutely was. This play, the flea flicker, like every other play with LT on the field, was going to be a high wire act. A 12-year veteran quarterback studied the defense one last time from behind his archaic single bar face mask. The single bar, which had been phasing out of the NFL for decades, made it easier for Theismann to see. It was a nod to the tradition of the league. But LT's main objective was to decimate the man with the ball, and he could give a fuck about tradition. LT was all about myopic destruction. That scorched earth style was altering the way the game was played with each snap. Theismann knew his chances were slim. All he could do at this point was pray that he wouldn't get fucking destroyed. Fuck it, he rolled the dice. As Theismann snapped the ball, LT exploded off the left side of the line. Theismann handed it to his running back, who pitched it back to him. It was just like Theismann had seen it in his head. Every second, though, was critical. LT closed in, throwing his would-be blocker effortlessly to the side and bearing down on Theismann with complete disregard for his own body. LT was a 6'4", 240-pound runaway train. Theismann felt the pressure bearing down on him, and then he saw a potential open man. He stepped up in the pocket to buy a fraction of a second, and that's when the train arrived at the station. LT engulfed Theismann, swallowing him whole, and then a loud crack and another crack. The players on the field knew that sound, bone tearing through flesh, more or less an occupational hazard on the gridiron, but this one sounded especially rough. Bodies piled up on top of the two gladiators, shoulder pads smacked into helmets, but all LT could hear was Joe Theismann screaming out in pain. His shrieks filled the field. As the bodies rolled off the pile, the crowd went deathly silent. One look at the wreckage of what was once Joe Theismann's leg was all LT needed. He leapt to his feet, dismayed by the destruction he had just wrought, and frantically called to the sideline for the medical staff. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Theismann's leg was broken in two, a shattered bone protruding through his skin. Minutes later, he was carted off the field. He would never play another game of professional football again. Full stop. LT, on the other hand, showed no signs of slowing down. He put the pedal to the metal and gone one million miles per hour since the day he was drafted second overall by the New York football giants in 1981. Hell, he didn't even remember being drafted. He said he was drunk as fuck on something like 41 Coors Lights when his name was announced. 
And that was during his days at the University of North Carolina, where, during long nights of partying, he got attention with his party tricks. He climbed six-story buildings. He chewed glass. He did these things for fun. All while becoming one of the best college players of all time for the Tar Heels. And by his third season in the NFL, he was a god on the field. He stirred crowds into a frenzy with his violent, vicious, visceral play. They chanted LT endlessly. He ate quarterbacks for lunch, and they screamed for more from LT. And he did it at the epicenter of the world, the only place that could keep up with him, New York City. LT took advantage of what Manhattan had to offer. But when he wasn't busy throwing casual sex parties at the house he shared with teammates and then popping strawberry-flavored penicillin afterward, you know, just in case, he was popping around to any and every nightclub or bar he could find. Studio 54, the China Club, the Palladium. Place had women and liquor. He was there. And the booze went down like water. Pictures of kamikazes, dozens of bud heavies. They were nothing to LT. And neither was the routine. Stay out till sunrise, drive to the giant's facility, recline the seat, grab a few hours of shut-eye, wake up to someone frantically knocking on the window, maybe a ball boy, maybe a teammate, grab a shower, gargle some mouthwash, good to go. And if the drinking and partying affected his play, it didn't show. LT remained addicted to racking up insane stats on the field and addicted to the party life off the field. He couldn't move fast enough, so fast that the repercussions couldn't keep up with him and not even a failed drug test in 85. Why would they even think about taking LT off the field? He wasn't just a star. He was one of the biggest draws in the league, the one fans came to see, the reason millions stayed up way too late watching Monday Night Football. He was untouchable. And the higher his star rose, the more invincible he became. Soon, he needed new ways to push himself even higher, up where the air gets thin. Few can survive up there. Your vision gets blurry. Your knees get weak. At first, LT didn't just survive up there. He thrived. But pretty soon, the altitude got to him, too. Till the only thing left to do was to crash down to Earth. Coach Bill Parcells wasn't about to take any chances. And this wasn't just another game. This was a big fucking deal. Performances, the stakes, the lights, they were all bigger at the Super Bowl. Everyone was under a microscope. Everywhere you turned was another reporter from another market looking for another story. Parcells wanted only one story hitting the presses, that the New York Giants had made it to the big show for the first time in 30 years, and the first time ever since it was called the Super Bowl. All that other shit needed to go away. Like how his players enjoyed rubbing elbows with the carnival of debauchery that was the 1986 New York Mets. Parcells knew he couldn't tell grown men how to live their lives, but there was one thing he could do, at least for this one week. Six of his players would spend their Super Bowl tailed by security. Parcells didn't name names. He didn't have to. And Parcells wasn't worried about LT on the field. Unlike some of the Mets, who mixed beer and amphetamines during games, LT never used drugs before or during games. 
He remained clear and focused. He took the game seriously. Off the field, well, that was a different story. From the time LT arrived in New York, cocaine was practically everywhere. Blow wasn't like booze. It didn't just make LT feel good, it made him feel invincible. And the power, the heightened alertness, the euphoria, it was like 60,000 fans on their feet cheering after recording back-to-back sacks. It was electric, and it was on demand. LT chased Coke the same way he chased down quarterbacks, with fixed purpose, hell-bent on inflicting destruction. A few times a month turned into a few times a week, and a few times a week turned into every other day. Cocaine was as central to the routine as reps in the weight room. And soon, Coke wasn't enough. LT needed to go faster, get higher. And that's when LT turned to crack. And that's when the shit got heavy. LT was always thinking about his next score. And the next time he could sprinkle some rock into the filter of a Salem cigarette and take it into his lungs. Always to the lungs, never up the nose. Hit your brain faster that way. And the rush, fucking forget about it. Couldn't get his mind off it. He thought about it standing in the huddle on the field. He thought about the spots in each city. The places where you could find what you needed. Guys you had to talk to, handshakes you needed to make. LT didn't care if the dealers were strapped. He didn't care what it cost. He was making so much money he couldn't keep count anymore. Hell, just a few years back in 1983, he'd been able to leverage a United States Football League contract offer from Donald Trump himself into a new contract with the Giants. He went from making an average salary of $300,000 to over one million essentially overnight. In New York, LT got what he wanted. Not just money, women, and drugs, fame, infamy. And so it didn't come as a surprise that Bill Parcells wanted to keep tabs on his star player. But per usual, LT didn't let his extracurricular activities interfere with his ability to play. The January 1987 Super Bowl game was a cherry on top of a dominant season of defensive play. The Giants stomped the Broncos. LT recorded a team record 20 and one half sacks that year. He was named the team's MVP, and he was at the peak of the mountain. There was nowhere higher to climb, and nothing left to chase. And that was a problem. The day after the big game, after the bright lights had faded, and the roar of the crowd lingered like a dull hum in the back of his head, there was only one thing on LT's mind, an itch he had to scratch, an itch he couldn't scratch on the field. No worries, because LT was no longer a football player. He was a celebrity. Everyone in New York in the late 80s wanted a piece of LT. Madonna, Mike Tyson, Whitney Houston, Bruce Willis, and just like his friend, Eddie Murphy's girl, LT liked to party all the time, and he partied like a fucking rock star. This existence, attracting the attention of any hotshit celebrity at your beck and call, New York City as your proverbial oyster, an oyster that wasn't served on ice because fuck the ice, fuck doing anything safely. It wasn't normal. LT knew this. He knew he was getting away with something which made it all the better. He was brazen, he was bold, and it worked. It just didn't last. September, 1988. LT was pissed. It wasn't the drubbing that the Giants had just been given by the Los Angeles Rams or the 45 points they allowed in a loss that dropped them to two and two on the season. It was because LT had to watch this shit from the sidelines, but not the actual sidelines on the field, he watched his team get pummeled from home. This was the fourth consecutive game he watched like this, all because of a failed test. His blood pressure shot up every time he thought about it. 
He had been so careful for so long. He had a system to beat the system. It was foolproof, or so he thought. He'd had to tighten things up back in 1985 when he was nabbed for the first time. He knew that put a target on his back. He was subjected to more than a few so-called random drug tests. He looked at the testing system like it was a QB, just another opponent, an opponent for LT to destroy. And he did. He fucked that opponent up, just like Joe Theismann in his snapped leg. LT's own system was simple. He carried around an empty aspirin or Visine bottle and had his teammates piss into it when he needed a clean sample. Then he shoved the bottle into his pants and carefully dumped it into the sample cup when he entered the private stall for the test. Clean piss meant a passed test, and passed test meant he had at least a few more weeks to continue chugging along at cruising speed out on the town. And for years, it worked. Sure, he got caught once, but that was the outlier. And that was before it was even punishable by the NFL. And even though it was a hassle, it was better than rehab. But LT did give rehab a shot in early 86. The place bored him to tears. He spent more of his six-week stay in a Houston facility on the golf course than he did sitting in meetings with alcoholics and junkies. And the testing continued, and LT continued to work his magic. And just like magic, it was all about misdirection, or distraction, whatever. It was all about other guys' piss. That's what it was about. And LT didn't look at every sample of urine that he solicited. After a while, he hardly looked at all. He was on autopilot, so he didn't notice the cloudy sample that one of the players passed on to him. And that particular failure meant 30 days away from the team. Four missed games. This was strike two. But one more, he'd be out of the league for an entire season. Damn. This was cutting it way too close for LT. Every time he had to watch his own team from the discomfort of his own home hammered down the point. This wasn't where he belonged. Watching some other guy do his job. He was hungry. He needed to get back in uniform, back on the field. Was he about to risk his paycheck, his career, for one more thrill-seeking strike? No fucking way. This is just another opponent to mangle. So LT dried out, and this time, for real. Cold turkey, rehab, minus the fairway. Coke and crack, no more. LT was clean, he was focused. Even demons couldn't take him down. Fuck the demons. And for the next five years, LT passed every drug test he took without intervention from teammates. But if it wasn't one thing, it was another. The physical toll of life in the NFL began to wear on him. It was like being in a car crash every week, and the injuries started to pile up. A hairline fracture of his right tibia, a broken foot, a detached pectoral muscle, torn shoulder ligaments. LT played through them all. He overcame every ailment. He was held together by tape and fuck-all attitude. He was almost invincible. Almost. November. 1992. It was the third quarter and LT already had a sack and a forced fumble, which led to a touchdown, and the Packers couldn't touch him. This was how he wanted to go out. He'd already told the media that 92 would be his last season, and he planned to leave the game the same way he came into it, on top. The Packers' young quarterback, some hayseed named Brett Favre, was running for his fucking life. He barked an audible, he took the snap, and LT blew by his would-be defender with almost no effort at all. He saw the open shot and moved to take it. Favre caught sight of him and attempted to rifle the ball over LT's head. LT reached for it. The ball bounced off his hands and fell harmlessly to the ground. LT, however, did not. As his body moved backward, his plant leg got stuck in the artificial turf. His leg went one way 
His Achilles went the other. LT sunk to the ground in a heap. Fuck. He'd never experienced pain like this before. His leg felt like it was on fire. It made him want to throw up, it hurt so much. And it hurt so much, he never wanted to play football again. This wasn't how it was supposed to go down, with a ripped Achilles and nearly two-inch tear. He was supposed to go out on his terms, not in some crumpled mess in the middle of Giants Stadium. So we pushed through the next steps. Surgery, PT, what felt like a never-ending waiting game. And then, finally, a triumphant return. Another opportunity to end his career on his terms. But after five years of this on the wagon bullshit, the random drug test no longer a regular concern, and with the final days of his career well within sight, a familiar itch returned. And now, all bets were off. The warm, saltwater breeze rolled off the Atlantic Ocean and into the streets of Myrtle Beach. Conditions had been nothing short of idyllic ever since LT touched down just a few days before, in May of 1996, for a weekend of golf at a charity event. Golf was the thing that kept him preoccupied during his stint in rehab. Golf was what kept his mind off the drugs on the back nine of his career with the Giants. Golf, as he claimed, helped him beat addiction entirely. LT walked off the course, and the bright day slowly transitioned into a night of neon. A night that beckoned to the demons he thought he'd laid to rest. Those demons were very much alive. Those demons gnawed at the back of his mind. They told him, you can't golf at night, dude. It was shocking how easy it was to backslide. Suddenly, LT was ready to hit the town and get after it. But first, he needed a fix. Thankfully, he was a seasoned pro in more ways than one, which meant he still knew exactly where to score some rock in almost any city across the United States. He strolled over to the corner of Dubar and Rainbow, just off the main drag and found just what he was looking for. The dealer right on the corner, right where LT knew he'd be. LT scanned the area and random tourists passed by. An old woman inched her way down the street. It all looked normal enough, but something felt off. And no matter, he'd be in and out of there in just a couple of minutes and back to the hotel room or out to a nightclub. And this was easy. He'd done it a million times before. Just get the deal done. LT pulled a crisp $100 bill from his pocket. He took another glance around the neighborhood and then passed the Benjamin to the dealer. And the dealer dropped a rock into LT's hand. And there it was. Salvation. The biggest, fattest rock. It glowed in his hands. It vibrated. It rumbled and crackled and made noises that sounded like the rumble of a football stadium. He couldn't take his eyes off it. Then its glow became erratic. The sound it made was distressing. It sounded like people screaming at him, yelling at him from every direction. And he looked up and he was surrounded. The glow he'd seen on the rock was actually from the flashlights that were wobbling in his general direction. And the noises were coming from all these undercover cops. And they were all over him. Guns drawn, telling him to get on the ground. Even that old woman, the one inching her way down the street, had a fucking piece in her hands. LT panicked. He did the first thing that came to his mind. He swallowed the rock. The three years since LT retired had been a mixed bag, to say the least. A string of failed business ventures had lost him nearly $3 million. Against his better judgment, he was considering a comeback to football so he could make a little cash. 
but it was hard to seriously consider a day job in the NFL when you were busy scheduling your days around a coke habit. He tried rehab again. It worked before, but now, no dice. And just days after he left his latest stint in rehab, and without the pressure of drug testing hanging over his head, he was getting high in the Bahamas. And the next thing he knew, he was on a binge, and it went on for months. As the cops in Myrtle Beach booked him, he pleaded for a pass. And this shit was going to ruin him. This shit would embarrass his family. And this shit would send him on a downward spiral he'd never be able to recover from. Did they want to be the ones that sent LT on a downward spiral? And the cops sympathized, but what were they going to do? The man who sat in their holding cell was not the gladiator who triumphantly wore the number 56 jersey across his chest. LT and the big blue wrecking crew, those days, they seemed like ancient history. To make matters worse, couldn't even get high. Turns out the crack rock he was sold was just a decoy, some harmless food-grade substance or something. LT posted a $5,000 bail, and then it was back home and back to rehab. It was only a year later when the demons sunk their claws into him once again. He just could not escape them. Two years after that, he fell into the deepest abyss of his life. By the middle of 1998, LT, Lawrence Taylor, one of the greatest football players to ever play the game, was living in what he would later describe as a crack house. His New Jersey home, which was situated directly in the middle of a more than affluent neighborhood, smelled like wet dog and stale smoke. And the carpets were full of burn holes. A porno played on a television in the living room while a stranger lay in a corner curled up and shaking through a vicious come down. LT emerged from his room and he was naked. A woman stood next to him and they met at the bar just hours ago. And now he was showing her out the front door. As she left, LT studied the man freaking out in the corner. Who the hell was this guy? A dealer, an addict, a sex worker? He had no clue. Didn't matter, because he didn't care. All he cared about was smoking more crack. That and escorts. LT was spending over $70,000 a month on drugs and women. He barely left the house. And when he did, he didn't even bother to change out of his bathrobe and flip-flops. What was the point? He didn't need to dress up if all he wanted to do was score. October 19th, 1998, St. Petersburg, Florida. The phone was ringing again. LT picked it up, but he didn't try to mask his frustration. He already told this guy he was all set, more than once. He was good. He didn't want to buy any more rock. He just wanted to get to bed. He needed to rest up for his flight home the next day. But Clement Brown wasn't the quitting type. Kept calling. And that familiar sensation came back. The one LT felt back in Myrtle Beach that he ignored. Something was off. Something was up. He shared that feeling with Clement Brown. He said it felt like someone was trying to set him up. And LT hung up the phone. And like he said more than once already, he was all good. A short time later, a knock came at the door. And it was Clement Brown. Unbelievable. Dude couldn't take a goddamn hint. The balls on this guy. He wasn't alone. He brought a woman with him and they offered LT some rock. Nah, he was good. Seriously, take it, they insisted. Just take it, LT, no charge. Whatever, LT took the rock. He just wanted these people out of his house, and he wanted Clement Brown to stop calling him on the phone. But those two started arguing about money, about how they didn't have any, about how this little deal was supposed to net them some cash. LT was sick of it. He pulled a $50 bill from his pocket and handed it over. Take it and get the fuck out. And as soon as he handed the money over, that was it. LT was busted again. Gotcha, motherfucker. 
the woman pulled out a badge. Turns out that St. Petersburg PD were listening in on those phone calls between Clement Brown and LT. And now Clement Brown was wearing a wire in LT's house. It was a bum rap. LT didn't even want the rock, but who would believe him? He knew what would happen next. He'd be charged and then dragged through the mud once again. And this time, maybe LT would be gone forever. And all that would remain was Lawrence Taylor. And that guy needed to make a decision. He chose more rehab and an 18-month probation over jail time. He wasn't simply ready to get clean. He was ready to come clean. barrel of the gun was right there, pointed directly at his head. LT gripped the steering wheel. He wondered if this could really be the end. It certainly felt like it. The gun inched closer. The guy holding it was sitting in the passenger seat. His eyes were fixed on LT's Rolex. Give me that shit. LT took the watch off slowly. Just his fucking luck. He picked up from this spot before and he thought it was safe. The ring, the passenger said. Give me the ring too. LT grunted. He started to remove his pinky ring and whatever it took to get this guy out of his car. But the guy had no intention of getting out of LT's car. He leaned out the window to talk to his associate standing outside the vehicle. It took a minute, but soon LT realized what was going on. This was no longer a quick errand to pick up a couple grams of coke. This was now a carjacking. The guy in the front seat handed his gun to one of the dudes outside the car and he reached across LT to unlock the door. Nuts when LT laid into the gas pedal. The car shot forward. LT swerved from side to side. He gave it a few seconds and then slammed on the brakes. He grabbed the would-be carjacker's head and started to bash him into the steering wheel. LT took a ship back, tossed the guy out of the car, and then he drove the fuck home. And that was only the introduction to his brand new book. LT may have made it out alive, but he wasn't risking that type of shit. Not anymore. No more shady dealers on street corners. No more phone calls from guys with rocks to unload. Now, he was seated across from Mike Wallace on the set of a CBS studio. Mike Wallace held LT's new memoir in his hands. He had questions about the secrets LT had divulged. LT pulled no punches. This is how it happened. This is what I was. This is what I am. LT knew he wasn't a role model. He never said he was, and he never intended to be. He also didn't care how the book made people view him. People needed to know the truth. They needed to know that while LT was deeply flawed, he was also honest. LT told his story over and over again. He told it like he played the game of football, with reckless abandon and absolutely no regard for his own well-being. If he couldn't be a role model, then he'd be an example, a cautionary tale. LT was transparent with Mike Wallace and the world. His struggles with drugs, addiction, the law, 60 Minutes gave him a platform to put it all out there. How he reached the absolute peak, accomplished more than anyone else around him. How he brought an intensity to the gridiron that was matched only by the intensity he brought off the field. How it didn't matter who tried to slow him down. LT did what LT wanted to do. Whatever made sense, even if it didn't make sense. He didn't know any other way to live. Living like that brought him right to the edge and then pushed him over that edge. And just before he stumbled into the all-consuming darkness, into the point of no return, 
He looked back over his shoulder, came back. Was the game over? Fuck no. It was over when LT said it was over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.